It's always dangerous to begin a sermon by talking about uh, your mother-in-law, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, my uh, my wife's mom is a really really fun lady, and uh, she's a lot of uh, she has a lot of fun in in life, and uh, she has a, a habit that is interesting to me because she will uh, she will say when things are surprising or shocking, she'll say a certain word, mercy. And it's sort of a, a Southern thing, I guess, a Texas thing, uh, uh, perhaps. But um, she'll, she'll say mercy, you know, and when something happens. And I began to think about that word mercy, you know. It's a, it's a very important word in, uh, in Scripture. It's a very important word in our lives. And I, I don't think we really think about it that much. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think mercy really is? When you show mercy to something, what is that? Well, well, I'll go ahead and tell you, mercy is showing compassion to something that's miserable. That's what mercy is. It's having compassion on something that's miserable. So, like feeding a destitute man who's hungry, that's showing mercy. Um, taking care of a lost dog, that's showing mercy to a dog. Helping a child that's scared, and hurt is showing mercy. Um, voicing the closing prayer at the end of an exceedingly long term. That's an act of mercy right there. You know, but sometimes the Bible talks about the mercies of God. The mercies of God. And we are the recipients of God's mercies. And what that means, when the Bible says that we're the recipients of God's mercy, it implies that we're the ones that, apart from him, are miserable and helpless and hopeless. And God reaches out to us out of his compassion. And I want you, when you listen to this sermon today, I want you to keep in mind a verse that we talked about last week, if you were here last week, in our journey through the book of Romans. And it's the very last verse in chapter 11, with the exception of that doxology of praise, beginning in verse 33. You go one verse prior to that, and it's Romans 11:32, And that verse is such an important verse because it encapsulates the entire theological section of Romans. Romans chapter 1 through 11 is the theological section of Romans. Beginning in chapter 12, and on to the end of the book, it's what we do with what we believe. And really, that's, that's a pattern in life that you need to begin to capture. That your theology, let me rephrase that, your beliefs, the way you think, what you believe about life, what you believe about God, whatever it is that you believe, it impacts your practice. It impacts what you do. And so whatever it is you believe, it has an impact, it has a change, it has an effect on what you do. And so Paul has spent 11 chapters, and we spent 37 weeks looking at everything that the Apostle Paul had to say in the theological section of Romans, and he sums it all up in the very last verse of 
Romans chapter 11, with that little exception of the, the last few verses that are a doxology of praise. And this is what Romans 11.32 says. It says, For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. So that he may show mercy to all. So think about it. What is it that God wants to show everybody? According to that verse, God wants to show everybody his mercy. Everyone who's, who apart from him is miserable and hopeless and helpless, and that's all of us. He wants to show mercy to us out of his compassion. And so in your life, when you, as you walk with God and you seek to know God, it's important to realize something, that every time that God does something for you, he expects a response. Every time that God does something for us, he wants us to respond in a certain way. And so we need to respond. And sometimes the only thing we can do when God does something for us is we, we say thank you. Sometimes that's the only thing we can do, say, say thank you, God. But it's important that you say it. It's important that you, you take the time and you say those words and you voice that prayer of gratitude to God being grateful for what God has done. And when we understand the incredible mercies of God that he has given us, we are to respond not only with a thank you, God, but we are, our response is to be something much more profound because there's an offering that we are supposed to make. That's talked about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're in this series called Romans, Mercy to All. And when you found Romans chapter 12, would you stand please in honor of the reading of God's Word? Just two verses today, Romans 12, 1 and 2. The Bible says, and I'll read out loud, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Heavenly Father, I pray that this might be our response to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to think about everything that God has given you, everything that he's given us. He's given us his love and his kindness. He's given us his grace. We have freedom in Christ. He's given us his peace. He's given us reconciliation with him. He's given us hope. He's given us his honor. He's given us his glory. These are incredible gifts, none of which we deserve. These are the mercies of God. And these are just a part. These are just a small part of the incredible mercies of God in our response to God. Because of all of these mercies that Paul has talked about for 11 chapters now, our response to God is worship. It's worship. Verse 1 again says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies 
a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What is worship? You know, in our culture, we've come to think of worship as the time that we gather together as a church, this time right here. We come to think of this as worship. People say, well, what time is worship at your church? And we respond, well, 1030. That's what time worship is at our church. And so we, we perceive with our language, we perceive that worship is something that happens on an hour on Sundays. It lasts for about 60 minutes or so. That's when worship occurs. But that's not what Scripture says worship is. Sometimes we use this language, in fact. We, we say, well, my church has traditional worship. Or my church has contemporary worship. Or my church has blended worship. You know, or we say something like, after the worship, the preacher gets up and preaches the sermon. We, we think of things that way. And when we, when we talk like that, we're equating worship with singing. And that's not what the Bible says worship is. I really think that we need to change the way we speak about things. I mean, what if we used the words of the Bible in the same way that the Bible used those words? It might do us all a lot of good if we were very specific and clear about that. And it's going to be hard, but I think we need to stop calling singing worship. And we need to stop calling our gathering together worship. Because when we mischaracterize and we limit what worship really is in this way, then, then we, run the, we run the risk of completely missing what God says worship is. You see, singing, there, the Bible has a word, the New Testament has a word for singing. It's called singing. Okay. The Bible has a word for our gathering. It's called gathering or assembling. And those rascally assemblies of God people, they sort of they, they grabbed that one, didn't they? they were, oh well. This is our assembly together. This is our gathering together. Okay? Worship might happen when we sing. It might happen when we gather, but then again, it might not. What, is exact, what exactly is worship? This is what worship is. Worship is offering yourself to God. That's what worship is. Worship is offering yourself to God. Look at verse 1. There's a little word there. It says to present. Present. The word translated present, it was, a, it was a technical term for the offering that a priest placed upon the altar. And it carries the idea of surrender. It carries the idea of surrender. And so when we present ourselves to God, when we are the, we are the offering, and we present ourselves to God, then we surrender ourselves to him. Way back in World War II, I'm, I'm a history buff, and of course you know I used to be a history teacher. In World War II, uh, you, we had United States versus Japan on, on, in one theater. And uh, the Japanese military commanders, 
they always wore their swords. The blades that they had on those swords, they, those blades themselves were often family heirlooms, and they were carefully preserved, and they were passed down generation after generation. So each new generation could remount that blade, perhaps on a new handle for battle. And, and the Japanese commander's sword, it, it represented more than just a weapon, but it, it represented his social standing. It represented his military standing. And this, this type of sentiment went all the way back to the days of the samurai in the Japanese culture. And so the sword was more than a weapon. It represented authority over others. It represented self-discipline. It represented a code of honor. But on September 2nd, 1945, on the USS Missouri, Japanese officials, as you might know from history, they surrendered to the United States in a ceremony there. And among those officials on deck for that ceremony, there were a handful of Japanese military commanders, but none of them wore their sword. You can go back and look at the, there's, there's a video that you can watch. There's pictures you can view. Not one of them wore their sword because the samurai swords and the dress daggers that they would normally wear, they were left on a, on a table in a cabin on the ship. Giving up their swords that day had a greater symbolic and emotional effect on those military commanders than the ritual of surrender itself. When you understand how much God has shown us mercy, your response to him needs to be to lay down your sword. Your response to him needs to be to surrender. One of my absolute favorite hymns of the faith, and it's one of my favorites because I understood the meaning of this hymn when I was a child. Even, even as a child, I, I studied World War II and the Battle of Midway and, and some of these other battles and, and ultimately the, the idea of surrender. But one of my favorite hymns is I Surrender All. I surrender all. I surrender everything to God. I give up. I'm going to stop fighting you, God. That has to be our attitude. And so when we make a complete offering of ourselves to God, we are surrendering ourselves to Him. But let's be even more specific because Romans chapter 12, verse 1 is more specific than that. When you make yourself an offering to God, specifically what you actually are offering to God is the use of your body. Look at verse 1 again. It says, present your bodies. Present your bodies. You know, if there's one possession that you have that you can never lose, it is your body. There, there are many things in life, in this life, that you can have no control over. You wish you could, but you can't have any control over most things in life. But you do have control over your body. You do have control over it. The Bible teaches that your body is good. Your body is a good body. God made your body to be good. God designed your body to be amazing. Your body heals itself. I mean, just think about that. 
you know, and even with this this leg injury that that I've I've suffered, uh, the doctor who gets all the money, his prescription for me is don't walk on it. Why? Because the bones heal itself. The bones will heal themselves. Okay? Your body's absolutely amazing. Your body allows you as, as a whole to function. It, it, it enables you to serve God. Yet Scripture teaches also this same body, it has become affected by sin. And this book that we're studying, Romans more than any other book perhaps, teaches that your body's been affected by sin. Sin lives in your body. Sin dwells in this body. And your body is mortal. Your body will die. And so what Paul is saying is, take this one possession that you have, the only thing of any physical substance that you can have and never lose, take this one possession and this one thing that you have control over, this very good thing, this amazing thing, Yet this thing that uh, sin dwells in, take this one thing and devote it to God. Offer it to God. Dedicate it to God's use every single day. This is my offering to God. This, this body, this is my sacrifice that I make to God. This is what I give to God. Verse 1 says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What a powerful word, sacrifice is. You know what a sacrifice is. In baseball, I don't know if you're watching the World Series, but in baseball, you know what a sacrifice bunt is? It means that the batter will lay down a very soft hit that won't go past the infield. What he's doing is he's intentionally getting himself out to advance a runner to put him in scoring position. He's taking one for the team. That batter, if everything goes right in that sacrifice bunt, that batter is essentially taking himself out of the game. He's going to go sit in the dugout. He's going to become an observer and not a participant, which is not usually what baseball players want to do. He's going to go sit in the dugout because it helps his team win the game. His team can succeed if he will lose. That's what a sacrifice is. And when we make a sacrifice of any kind, we make a sacrifice because even though we lose something, there's something greater that we gain. There's something greater that we gain. And so when it comes to your body, I want you to think about all the things you can do with this body of yours. You can do anything you want with your body. God has given you the freedom to do anything you want with your body. You can pump your body so full of drugs that you experience all types of ecstasy. You can do that with your body if you want. You can experience everything there is to experience sexually with your body if you want. You can dedicate your body to the pursuit of money. You can dedicate your body to the pursuit of power. And you can ignore the obvious reality that drug-induced ecstasies always crash, sexual promiscuity always leaves you unfulfilled, the unbridled pursuit of money will cost you everything truly valuable, and acquiring power is only a lonely and empty journey. 
You can ignore all of that and do anything you want with this body of yours. Your body is yours to do with as you wish. God is looking for people who, because of his mercies, would respond to him by sacrificing all of those empty pursuits and instead devoting themselves to him. Are you one of those rare individuals? Because most of the world does all of the other stuff. He's looking for people who will say to him, hey God, this body that you created, I give it back to you. Do whatever you want with this body today. You know, in the Old Testament, God's people were told to sacrifice animals. And, of course, a sacrificed animal means a dead animal. The animals had to die. But when we choose to die to ourselves, we choose to die to our own desires, then we actually become what verse 1 says is a living sacrifice. Yeah, and so why would somebody devote their body to God and miss out on all the pleasures of living for themselves. Here's why. It is because Jesus Christ offered up his body for us on the cross. He was a sacrifice for us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for all of your sins against God and mine. Jesus was buried in a tomb. And that body was raised from the grave. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus was a sacrifice for you. He died for you. Will you live for him? That's worship. That's worship. When we understand the mercies of God, what God's done for us, and we respond by saying, I will live for you. And when we dedicate our bodies to God, we become living and holy sacrifices. A holy sacrifice is, it means to be separated. The word holy means to be separated. It means to be different. It means that we're, there's something distinct about our lives, and it differentiates us from other people. And so no longer are we to be just profane and common and ordinary, but, but we are to live for God now. God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be different. And so when we gather together every Sunday, it's not to sing songs. When we gather together every Sunday, it's not to hear a sermon. If you come to church to sing songs and to hear a sermon, you will likely walk away unchanged. You will likely act as if you were a judge of some type of religious performance put on by professionals. Well, I like this song, but not that song. Well, that sermon was okay, but I've heard him preach better. But what if every single one of us gathered together each Sunday 
to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, then the songs that we sing and the sermon that we hear help us. They become tools in offering ourselves to God, devoting ourselves to Him. That's when you walk away changed. That's when you'll say things like, God spoke to my heart today through that song. Or, that sermon caused me to strive to change something about my life. And that's so much more valuable. Why in the world would you ever come to church only to walk away as a judge of religious performance when you could come to church with the potential to encounter and experience the God who created the entire world and to walk away changed by Him. The former is sort of what we stumble into and we slide into, and it's a shame because we miss the latter. We miss God. We miss God. You know, it's then when we really experience God, when we really worship God according to what God's Word says worship is, it's then that we've been with God in any time, any time you've been with God, you are changed. Look at verse 2. It talks about that. It says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 2 begins with a very clear admonition. It says, do not be conformed to this world. You know, one of my favorite toys when I was a kid, and they still have this, it's Silly Putty. Oh, everybody loves Silly Putty. I mean, whoever branded it Silly Putty, that, that guy's a rich genius, I'm sure. You know, but that stuff was great because you can make silly putty into a ball or into a snake. That's about all I can do. Or sometimes when the Sunday paper came out and you had, you had the colored comics, you could press, you could imp impress that silly putty onto the Sunday comics and it would be transferred right onto the silly putty. That, was, that stuff was so cool. What made Silly Putty so cool was that Silly Putty absolutely conforms to any outside pressure and outside influence. And if it didn't conform, it wouldn't be any fun. It wouldn't be Silly Putty. It would just be a rock. And who wants to play with a rock, you know? But I think there's a lot of uh, Silly Putty Christians out there. I mean, pressure comes from the outside. Pressure comes from the world influence comes into our lives and, and we just sort of give in. We just sort of give in to whatever happens to us. People are sort of just Christians are shaped into whatever the world wants to make of them. The world says, hey, I'll love you if you'll stop upholding moral standards and believers sometimes respond, okay, okay, just keep loving me, world. The world says, I'll accept you if you keep all that Jesus stuff to yourself, and Christians respond, okay, okay, 
Just accept me. Whatever it takes. The world says, I'll be your friend if you do what I say. And disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, they say, okay, okay, just, just be my friend. But Jesus said, we are his friends if we obey him. The Bible says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So I think we need to just make up our minds, quit being a mushy, conformed, squishy, silly, putty Christian. We need to be a rock. We need to stand for something. We need to stand for Christ. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Your life can be absolutely transformed. How do you do it? By renewing your mind. Well, how do I renew my mind? Great question. It's pretty easy, but you just have to put it in practice. You renew your mind by intentionally thinking about godly things. By putting your mind and dwelling it on godly things. And so you need to eliminate or at least limit the ungodly things that enter your mind. You might need to replace some of the bad words that you hear or the bad images that you see with godly words and with godly images. Because you know, when you put garbage in, you get garbage out. That was that was very, very weakly stated by you. Let's try that again. When you put garbage in, you get, that's better. Philippians 4.8, fantastic verse. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You know, if you put Scripture in your mind, you get Scripture lived out. How do you get Scripture in your mind? You get Scripture in your mind by reading it. What if you can't read it? Then listen to it, hear it. You put scripture in your mind by talking about it, by thinking on it, by memorizing it. When you start to renew your mind through scripture, your whole life becomes changed for the better. Verse 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Sometimes Christians ask, What's God's will for my life? And I think that's a fair question. I understand what they mean by that. But when your mind is renewed with Scripture, you live out the will of God. Your life becomes the very will of God because He's doing His will in you. And so the Holy Spirit directs you into the specifics of God's will. And all you have to do is submit to Him daily. When you do that, 
and you're living out God's will for your life, then the daily sacrifice of yourself, it is what verse 2 says is good and acceptable and perfect. Today, I want us to have an opportunity to respond to the mercies of God. And so I'm going to ask us if we would, each one of us, offer up a prayer of an offering of our bodies to God.